Well, good morning, Door Creek. It's so good to be together on this beautiful, beautiful fall morning. So you could be in a lot of places right now. And thanks for being here. If you're a guest, my name's Mark, one of the pastors. And I just want to start our service out uh, with a word of prayer. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we want to lift up your name as being our refuge and strength and a very present help in the day of trouble. You, God, are the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, and we know there are hundreds and thousands of people whose lives have been forever changed by the events of what took place this past week in Las Vegas. And so our hearts are broken. We mourn with those who mourn. And we turn to you as our only hope in a time like this. You're the only one who could do anything good out of something like this. And we pray the good would be that people in their hurt, in their confusion, in their anger would, would turn to you and be drawn to a God who understands suffering and who sent your son to one day end all suffering. And so, Lord, we just lift up those families and those whose lives may still in the, be in the balance and those lives who will never be the same. We pray for your mercy, your comfort, your peace. We pray for hope. Now, as we come to your word, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it teaches us about who you are. It corrects us and how we're living, keeps us on the way that allows us to just run into your grace and your blessing and your goodness. And so help us to grow to love you more as your spirit helps us to understand it. And may we be encouraged with this word and may we be further aligned with your mission in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple weeks ago, my dad died, if you didn't know that, and some of you have been kind of tracking his journey. And what I wanted to do at the beginning of this weekend's message, I wanted to just tell you a little bit about my dad. And in telling you about my dad, you get a better understanding of who I am. But my dad's story is really a wonderful story of grace. And so I want especially share how my dad came from Switzerland to America, and it was all by God's grace. And I want to tell you about my dad's impact in my life, becoming a pastor at a very turbulent time. And then I want to connect my dad's story to the book of Acts, where we're going to start our study today in the next few weeks. So my dad, Henry Samuel Myfair, was born on the 28th of December, 1924, the fifth of six kids to Henry and Elizabeth Myfair in this really sleepy little village called Balleg, Switzerland, right on the French-Swiss border. It was known for uh, a big dental factory called the Myfair Factory. It had, um, it had a big uh, watch company there. It, it had a big wine manufacturing company. And pretty much everybody in Balleg was either a Myfair or a Laresh or a bourgeois, it means everybody was kind of related some way or the other. He grew up in a Christian home, and early on he went to a Christian camp up the mountain there, uh, the Jura Rosalie, and he trusted Christ as a young guy. At the age of 15, he was done with his formal schooling, and you'd either go on for university or you'd go on for an apprenticeship. He really wanted to be a carpenter. His dad was a carpenter. 
His dad was a master builder. He uh, had his own forest, milled his own wood. He built homes. Everything that he put into a home, he fabricated himself. My dad was drawn to that, helped his dad out. He was really hoping to be a carpenter. But his older brother, Andre, kind of took that spot. So at the age of 15, he ventured to the big city of Lausanne, which is on the, the edge of Lake Geneva, just down the road from Geneva, Switzerland. And he started an apprenticeship as a dental technician. Two weeks into the apprenticeship, he got word that his dad was sick with pneumonia and actually died in a very short period of time. Two years later, his mother died of breast cancer. He's 17. He's on his own. He's an orphan. He's looking out for his younger brother, Eric, who is like nine at the time, would become a free church missionary. That's part of the association of churches that we're part of. He uh, had to join the army because it's compulsory. He was a medic in the army. He didn't want to shoot a gun. And the guy asked him, why do you want to be a medic? He said, because I don't want to shoot anybody. He said, well, what if everybody felt like you did? My dad said, well, maybe there wouldn't be any wars. <laughs> so when he was doing his apprenticeship down in Lausanne, my mom um, was doing an apprenticeship as a milliner, a hat maker. Here's a picture of my mom and dad when they were dating in the mid-40s. They got married uh, October 5th, 48, but they started dating like 40. It was a long courtship. So she used to say when she came to America with her broken English, very broken English, and her Swiss-German accent, my mom's from the German part, my dad's from the French, she would say, meaning to say to her, her new friends, these women that she was meeting, that she was a milliner from Switzerland, but it came out she was a millionaire from Switzerland. <laughs> And all the women, you know, this is back in the early 50s, they're all kind of scratching their heads going, wow, that's kind of interesting. So, so that's probably one of the hats my mom made, I guess. And they fell madly in love in this unbelievably beautiful setting on the edge of Lake Geneva where, believe it or not, there's palm trees and you're looking over the lake at these just gorgeous mountains. So that's where they fell in love. So when they were dating, my dad was really clear. He said to my mom, hey, just so you know, I, I want to go to America. I, I want to go to this land of opportunity. And she thought, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just this young guy. He's got dreams. But this will never happen. So fast forward. They get married in 48. Uh, my dad has finished his apprenticeship. He's got a good job at a dental lab in Basel. This would be kind of my mom's hometown where she grew up. And uh, he's working for a lab that has a connection with a lab in Chicago. It's like a franchise of the Austin Lab in Chicago. And he goes, this is my ticket. So he asks his boss, he said, would you mind writing a letter to the head of that lab? His name is Dr. Ertl. And could you just put in a good word for me so that they would hire me and sponsor me so I could emigrate to the States and my dream could become reality? The guy said, sure, I'll do that. So um, a month goes by, my dad... He, um, he asked his boss, have you heard anything? His boss says, no, I haven't heard anything. He asked him after the second month, after the sixth month, after the ninth month, after the twelfth month, still hadn't heard anything. My dad says, well, would you mind if I wrote a letter to Dr. Earl? No, go right ahead. At that point, the secretary was really feeling embarrassed and bad for my dad, and she gets him to a moment all by himself, and she says, Henry, the reason you haven't heard and he hasn't heard anything is because he never sent a letter. In fact, when he heard you were sending a letter, he just sent the first letter, and he said, don't hire him, because I'm afraid he's going to come back and set up a competitive lab. So sure enough, he gets a letter from Dr. Ertl 
Yeah, there's unemployment, there's the Korean War, the aftermath. It's not a good time, sorry. So my dad would be undeterred. I mean, he had that kind of, if he set his mind to something, he would just slowly keep moving in that direction. So he said, all right, there's got to be other labs in Canada where I don't need to be sponsored, and I'll get to America through Canada. He finds a lab in Toronto that's a franchise of Austinal, and they say, yeah, come as quick as you can, and you've got a job here. So my oldest sister, Monique, is born May 5th, 1948 in Basel, Switzerland, and three days later, my dad's on a train to Paris, and two days later, he leaves from the harbor in Le Havre, France, for a seven-day voyage where he lands in Quebec, and he's got the, uh, the old home movies to show that voyage, what fun those were to catch up with. So he gets into Toronto. He doesn't have a place to live. He barely knows English, but he's got a job. The guy meets him, and he says, you don't know English very well, do you? He says, no, I don't know English very well at all. He said, here, there's a guy from Germany. Do you know German? My dad says, I know German. So he says, I'll just sit the two of you together. The guy was from Berlin. He says to my dad, so how's your housing? You got good housing? My dad says, it's not so great. He says, you know what? We've got a room that we rent. It's open right now. Let me talk to my wife. He takes him in. He's in there not a couple of weeks, and he says to my dad, oh, yeah, here's the picture of my dad uh, as, he's, as he's off on that SS Atlantic to America. Great shot there. So um, he um, says to my dad, hey, on Thursday nights, my buddy comes in. He's also a German from Berlin, and we just have a nice time sharing dinner. You're welcome to join us. My dad said, that's awesome. I'll come to dinner. He comes to dinner. He meets his friend from Berlin who says to my dad, oh, you're in the dental field? You need to meet my brother. My dad said, well, who's your brother? He said, my brother's a guy named Dr. Ertl. My dad just about dropped to the floor going, you have got to be kidding me. For a year now, I've been pursuing this guy hiring me, and he wrote me back and said he couldn't do it, and he goes on to say, hey, look, he comes through every two to three months. Next time he comes through, it's all good. I'll have a meet with you, and you can just connect with this guy. So my mom and sister didn't come till September, so three, four months after my dad left. It was a couple months after my mom and sister arrived that he got fired from that lab that he was working at. There's a guy who was his overseer that was jealous of him. The head of the tr of lab said to my dad, and others heard it, that he was going to be running this lab in short order. He was really good at what he did. And this guy would literally, he would ruin the work that my dad was doing and show it to his boss and say, you need to fire this guy. He's doing crappy work. And the boss said, you fire him if you want to fire him. He fired my dad. My dad comes back on a Friday, and he says to my mother, you're looking at an unemployed dental technician. On Monday, uh, he gets a job. On Tuesday, he's back to work. But it was providential because he was no longer working for an Austin lab. A knock on the door a couple months later, it's Dr. Ertl. Dr. Ertl profusely apologizes. He says, now that you're here, we can get you to Chicago. You've got a job. And so off they went a couple years later. So they get to Canada in 52, they get to Chicago in 54, they move to Evanston, just the north suburb of Chicago where I was born and raised, my younger sister, all of us were raised in that context. That story was ground zero for my dad. It was what would explain his, what you might wrongly assume is his positive mental attitude 
He, he, he came across as the quintessential eternal optimist. But it wasn't anything he worked himself up to. It's what God helped him work through and his experience of going through hard things and seeing God miraculously in the details. So we all just had a gut laugh about Dr. Ertl. But it wasn't a gut laugh when it happened. It was like a, oh, what? you got to be kidding me. God, how could you do this? It's unbelievable. And so my dad had this resilient faith that was always marked with hope. And whenever I spoke to him about difficulty in my life, he would speak into that situation with that hope that was rooted in his faith, that was grounded in a faithful God that had met him through the turns of life. That was a huge, huge story that graced his life and through him graced ours. I want to tell you another story. In junior high, I was wheels off. I trusted Christ as a young boy, five or six, loved Jesus with all my heart. He was as real as any relationship in my life. But I got to junior high, and I found out really quick, a relationship with Jesus didn't count squat with the people you're trying to get with, run with, be accepted by. And so I just chucked that, or actually I compartmentalized it. Like I was a good Christian kid at home and at church most of the time. And then at school, I was wheels off. I was a rebel. I was a troublemaker. I was heading for the youth detention center. I was a petty thief. I was running with the wrong people. And I was in constant trouble. I was in so much trouble that I was learning and practicing to sign my mother's signature. And she's got this weird German signature. It was not that easy. So I had to practice and practice, but I chickened out. But they found my paperwork, and I got grounded for thinking about it for a month. I broke the grounding. I was grounded for three months. Here's what happened. My dad never got angry. He was firm. There was consequences, but he moved towards me in kindness and compassion. I really wish he had told me the story that I just heard a, a week ago when my Uncle Eric said, oh, yeah, your dad was super mischievous as a kid. He was getting all kinds of trouble. <laughs> there was this time where he brought his alarm clock into class and <laughs> hid in his book bag, and it went off in the middle of class, and he got kicked out. He drove his bike down to the lake and ditched, and he had two report cards. I said, two report cards? Oh, yeah, if his grades weren't good, then he just filled out his own and gave it to his parents. <laughs> I'm thinking... He never told him, we're going to talk about that one day. <laughs> but here's what he did in junior high when I was a mess. He moved towards me every day. And here's, this is what his pattern was. He, I used to walk to middle school, to junior high, but he started to drive me in his little Volkswagen Beagle, Beetle that was the delivery car for his lab that he had started. And before I could get out of the car, he'd say, hey, let me just pray for you today. So have you ever been around somebody who uses prayer like as a manipulative guilt-inducing tool? He never did that. Have you ever been around someone who prays over you and is making you feel like you're just such a loser sinner guy? He never pulled the self-righteous card. He prayed for me with great faith, with clarity, in ways that I should have prayed for myself. And it didn't change things for a long time. But at the end of eighth grade. Here's what happened. I went to a camp, Moody Youth Camp, run by Moody Church down in Chicago. 
at Loon Lake near Antioch, Illinois, and I rededicated my life to Christ at that camp. And as a 13-year-old young kid, there was an, a shadow of doubt. I didn't hear anything. I didn't see anything. But I knew God wanted me to be a pastor. And it was the faith lived out by my mom and dad, their real relationship with Christ. But in huge part, my dad's grace extended to me in that very time of my life where he could have just been ticked at me and pushed me away from him and from the Lord. So grateful for that. Our dad loved the church. He was an usher. He was a behind-the-scenes guy. He was always helping people. He was generous all the time. He took us to church. Missionaries were in and out of our house all the time. We were always going to church. He taught us to give. Remember I've told you at the breakfast table, on the edge of the table on Sunday mornings, there was four quarters, Monique, Mark, Miriam, Madeline. And that was for the offering. On most Sundays, I got my quarter into the offering. Sometimes it went to the local pharmacy where we got candy. But anyways, he taught us. He modeled it. I, I have his dad's Bible. I just I didn't know my dad still had that from late 1800s. His dad was a strong believer. I got my dad's Bible from when he was 10, these French Bibles. My dad's Bible that he used all his life. What I remember about my dad is my dad would read through the Bible. He had an NAE Bible reading program, just like our rooted right now, going through the Old Testament. He did it every year. He was reading through the Bible. He was a Bible guy. He loved the church. He served the church. He took us to church, and he modeled a Christ-like life. He lived a life to the very end that honored Jesus. And the last gift that he gave us, I think, was an unusual gift that we didn't realize parents give to their kids until Lori's dad died of Lou Gehrig's many years ago now. But he taught us how to die. He taught us that faith in Jesus doesn't just change the way we live our life, but changes how we face death. And so my dad was completely at peace. He was ready to meet Jesus. He was excited. He would tell me, it's going to be a good day. Why is it taking so long? Because he was just teaching us in his physical suffering, and he had everything wrong with him. Seriously, he had everything. I won't even list it. We won't get done this morning. He had everything wrong with him. But um, he, he just had a quiet peace. And it was not about the, the peace he had as he faced death had nothing to do with the kind of life that he'd lived. And he lived a good life, and he was a good man. But it was solely focused on Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection for him. And so his peace was this huge gift of peace that we experience when on September 19th, my sister texted me. She said, you might want to just get on the app because we had a camera and we had apps that were hooked up to the camera because dad's just dying right now. And two of the sisters were there and my sister in Ohio and I were on our phones and we saw our dad peacefully be carried from this life to the next, meeting the one that he knew, that he loved, that he served. And for that, I'm forever grateful. And so he's gone. But the memories of my dad will mark my life, will mark my three sisters, the 13 grandkids, the 21 and growing great-grandchildren that he brought into this world in one way, shape, form, or the other. So I want to tell you a little bit about my dad. And it's a story of grace. And it has everything to do, not just with why I'm here today, 
but it has everything to do with Acts and the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is a history book in the New Testament. And Luke starts his book and says, actually, this is uh, my second volume. I gave you the gospel of what Jesus began to do all the way up until he ascended. Now I'm going to give you the rest of the story, what Jesus continued to do as he gave his spirit to his followers. And he said, remember what Jesus told us to do, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And the book starts out in Jerusalem. It's kind of like that image of, you know, that pebble that gets into the pond and the ripples start going out. And so the Spirit falls down on all God's people and the message starts spreading. So the beginning of Acts is Jerusalem and the end of Acts is Rome. So I want to show you a picture. This is in my dad's village. This is the Roman road. The Roman road went right through Balleg, Switzerland, this little sleepy backwater town hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And so I think about Acts and I think about the story of God's mission that has everything to do with God sending his son and then Jesus sending his spirit so that we could be part of his plan where the blessing to Abraham goes to all the families, where the witness goes not just to our own people who would have been the disciples' own people in Jerusalem and Judea, but it's going to go to the half-breeds, the hated Samaritans, and it's going to go to the Gentile world, to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts it connects God's grace to a little town of Baleg where my dad was born and raised. So grab your Bible, and let's look at this story. We're going to be starting out in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, the first part is going to talk about the giving of the Spirit. Now, we need to understand that the giving of the Spirit here is unique. We find the Spirit given to certain individuals for certain times and certain jobs, like Bezalel and Aholiab, the artisans of the tabernacle, like Othniel, the judge who's going to lead God's people, like Saul, the first king, and David, and some of the prophets as well. But what we have going on now in the New Testament is God's promise being fulfilled where his spirit would be poured out on all of God's family. So that's a unique thing. So we're going to look at the gift of the spirit. We're going to look at the power of the spirit. Because he says, well, go back to chapter 1, verse 8. This is what Jesus said. First of all, he said, get back to Jerusalem because my spirit's going to be given to you, so wait for it there. That's verse 4. Then in verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to witness, to be my witnesses, all right? So we're going to see the power then of the Spirit in a man called Peter and how it changed his life and how he pro powerfully proclaims uh, the message of the good news about Jesus Christ. And then we're going to see how people receive the Spirit and are changed as they hear the message. So this is all about being on mission. And it raises the question, are we on mission? Have we received God's grace? Do we have the Spirit's fullness and power to be the witnesses that he's called us to? Has our heart been changed by this gospel message? So we'll start then with the giving of the Spirit in chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together. In chapter 1, verse 15, they is 120 followers of Jesus, not just the 12. 
Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house while they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in another tongue, in another language, as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? These are the guys from up north of Jerusalem, up by the Sea of Galilee, kind of the hicks from up north. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans from the island of Crete, and Arabs from Arabia, right? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. All right, so it's the gift of the Spirit that's now coming to all the followers, all 120 that were gathered together. It happens on the day of Pentecost. What's Pentecost? Well, in one way to say, Pentecost means 50th day. It's the 50th day after the Passover. It's the second great feast for the Jews. Passover celebrates the Exodus, God's deliverance from Egypt. Jesus was crucified over Passover. He's raised and ascended to heaven on the 40th day. That's in chapter 1. This is 10 days later. They're waiting for the Spirit in that house. The 120 are present. And it's the second great feast. It's a, it's a harvest feast. It's like Thanksgiving. The barley's coming in. The wheat's coming in. They would make two long loaves and bake it from the new grains. And they would offer that to God with their thanks to God for his provision, for his goodness. That's the feast. That's what's going on here. And the result is people see what's going on. They're drawn to this house and the wind and, and the fire. It's in some ways a parallel story to Exodus 19 and 20 and the giving of the law where Mount Sinai, remember the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, hello, and there's the fire on the mountain and there's the earthquake and all of that associated with the giving of the law. And the giving of the law kind of just bound up God's people because we can't keep the law. This is the giving of the Spirit. It's not a mountain. It's, it's a house. It's flames that are coming down on people, languages that people would hear in their own language, the very wonders of God. And so there's a response to it. And the response is, what's going on here? They're drunk, right? Or uh, we just don't get it. Now, before we go on, I just want to note, when we have this record of all these different people, Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, Jesus' great commandment, the great commission, make disciples of all the nations. Jesus' first promise to Abraham to bless him and all the families of the world, it's happening right there on Pentecost in Jerusalem. So check this out. Parthians, think of Tigris River to India, Medes, modern-day Kurds, Elamites, Iran, 
residents of Mesopotamia, ancient Iraq, parts of Syria, Cappadocia, central Turkey, so too, Phrygia, Pamphylia, areas in Turkey, Egypt, we know where that is, Libya, North Africa, with their capital at that time, Cyrene, Rome, Italians, Cretans from the Isle of Crete, and Arabians, the Arabs from the Arabian Peninsula. All these people are there in Jerusalem. They're God-fearers. That means they aren't necessarily Jewish by blood, but they are Jewish by religion. They're worshiping Yahweh, and they hear about the wonders of God. So the giving of the Spirit. So they just said they're drunk. Peter now gets up in the power of the Spirit, and he delivers this powerful message to say, no, they're not just drunk. But before we go to his message, let's just catch up with Pete. So the last time we meet Pete in the Gospels is chapter 21 of, God, of John's Gospel. Verse 3 tells us that he went back to fishing. So whenever the Bible gives us details, there's so much details it could give us that when it gives us details, pay attention. What is John telling us? He gave up the mission. Jesus had just told him Go make disciples, right? Jesus wants him to be on mission, to be his follower, to pick up his cross, deny himself, and to follow him. And he's bailed. Why did he bail? Well, the story is 52 days before Pentecost, something like that, on that Thursday night when Jesus arrested. Remember, Peter's following at a distance in the shadows, and he gets to the very courtyard of where Jesus is being tried in the house. He's in that courtyard around the fire in the shadows and the flickering flames when a little servant girl goes, I don't know who you are, buddy. You're one of Jesus' guys. He said, the heck I am. I don't know that guy. Yeah, you are. I know it. You're one of, no, I'm not. When it's said a third time, he cusses his head off, says, I don't know anything about him, and he leaves. And the text tells us that he, there's some kind of a vantage point through a door, through a window, where he catches Jesus' gaze. And it says that he left that courtyard and wept bitterly. That he couldn't acknowledge and stand for the one who he called the Messiah. And so he was ravaged by his failure, his guilt. He was knocked out of the game. So in John 21, Jesus meets him not around the fire in the courtyard, but around a breakfast fire, remember? And he says to him, Pete, do you love me? Pete goes, yeah, I love you, Lord. He says, Pete, do you love me? He goes, man, Lord, I just told you that. Yeah, I love you. Pete, do you love me? Three times. It wasn't an accident because he denied him three times. He let him affirm in his kindness. He says, I want you to affirm it again because I know you do. You just need to hear yourself say it. When he said it a third time, he said, well, just, go, just go feed my sheep. Get back in the game. And so here's Peter who cowered in the shadows to a little servant girl who had no power over his life. And now he's in broad daylight before a crowd in the middle of Jerusalem. And he stands up and he boldly proclaims what happened. He experienced the grace of Christ and he's now got the filling of the Spirit and with that power. So what does he do? Well, here's what he does in the next verses, 15 and following. He says, look, they're not drunk. In fact, what's going on here is exactly what one of our prophets said was going to happen. In the last days, 
The Spirit is going to be poured out on young and old, women and men. That's what's happening now. So call on to the Lord and find salvation in Him. And then he begins to witness to Christ. So note this. When we're filled with the Spirit, we are going to shine the spotlight on Christ. A Spirit-filled person is about Jesus. A Spirit-filled person is full of the Word. It shouldn't surprise us that he starts quoting Scripture. He's quoting Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32. He's going to quote Psalm 16. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit's always working with the Word to give life, to strengthen faith, to comfort, encourage, lead, guide, give hope. And so he now makes a beeline to Jesus. Verse 22, check that out. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man. That's the first witness he gives to Jesus. He was a man who was accredited by God. He was endorsed by God. How so? By the miracles, the wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. There's no denying. You know about it. You saw about it. He was a miracle worker. Raised Lazarus from the dead. He goes on. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. Ah, if you live the events of the day, Pilate said, okay, then do with him what you want. My hands are clean. Peter said, just to set the record straight. Jesus' death on the cross was not a twist of fate. This was God's deliberate plan. But you're responsible. And so are these other wicked men. With the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And he's going to say, I'm an eyewitness of that. It's how Luke starts his whole writings here in Acts. In verse 3, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, there are 500 people that saw the resurrected Christ. Peter's saying, I put my fingers in the nail prints. My hand in his side where the sword plunged into his rib cage. I've seen him. I'm bearing witness that he's resurrected. And then he goes, don't be surprised about resurrection because David spoke about resurrection. And that's where he quotes Psalm 16 and how the Holy One would not see decay and how he was claiming the promise of God that was given to him and recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, when God says to David, 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 I know you want to build me a house. I know you want to build me a temple. I'm going to build your house. I'm going to build your family line. Here's the deal. I'm going to set one of your sons up on a throne. He's going to rule forever, and he's going to establish a kingdom that will never, ever be destroyed. He said he was talking about that, and when he talked about his Holy One would not see decay, his body wouldn't decompose, he was predicting and prophesying about the resurrection of the Messiah, and that's what's happened here. And so in verse 36, he says to them, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and and Messiah. And whenever we read the preaching of the apostles in the New Testament, they're constantly doing that. Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah. He's the one. He's the one, the hope of God. He's the Son of God. Believe in Him. Believe in Him. Turn to Him. So having heard this, verse 37 says, 
the people were cut to the heart. What does it mean to cut to the heart? Well, all, all of a sudden they're realizing this, they're part of this story. This is one of the things that brings us to this point of needing a Savior when we realize that Jesus died on the cross because of us. Now, they, they had hands-on, you know, they were part of, yeah, crucify him, they yelled, crucify him. These are the people he's talking to. You, this is the crowd that was yelling, we don't want him. Release Barabbas. Crucify this guy. He's not our Savior. He's a, he's a charlatan. Well, they, they're really in the story, but we're really in the story. Because he had to die because of our own rebellion against God. And when, our, when, when we connect that we're part of the story, that we're part of the cross, that, that it's not just the grace of God and the kindness of God and his love for us unconditionally, but it shows my own twisted brokenness and trying to be God in my own life and my rebellion against God, and that he died for me, and it's my sin to put him on, that we were cut to the heart. That's where they were, and they asked, what must we do? And so then, Peter goes from this powerful proclamation of the gospel that was all about Jesus Christ to now talk about what's the proper response to the gospel. And he says, you got to repent. you got to be baptized. That is, you, you got to have faith. Baptism is an expression of our faith. Because at the very end, it doesn't say they were added to the church because they were baptized. It says because they accepted the message. They believed that Jesus is the Son of God who lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was resurrected for them. And what does it say? Those who accepted his message, verse 41, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number. So I'm not going to get into this, but there are churches that believe that baptism saves. No, baptism doesn't save. It's, well, it seems like it does here. Keep reading. You'll understand that baptism is one of the expressions of our faith. They're saved, and we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So he says, you want to know what to do? you got to turn back to God. And you've got to seek his mercy and forgiveness. You need to put your whole faith in him and not in any good works that you're chasing or any other thing. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's just Jesus. And you will receive this spirit, and with that new life and new power to join him in this world and to give you hope for the next world. And it says that he warned them, don't put it off. And he pleaded with them, guys, this is the, our only hope. And it says at the very end of this section that that day, 3,000 people heard the message, powerfully proclaimed in the power of the spirit and believed the message. And the 120 became 3,000 120 that included people from Jerusalem and Judea and Turkey and Rome and Africa. So I want to ask three questions as we finish up. The first is, has the good news of God's love for you in Christ, where you understand that you're part of the story that put Jesus Christ on the cross. Has that done something in your own heart? Has your heart ever been cut to the quick? 
And if you have and you've reached out to Christ and placed your faith on him, have you ever expressed it in obedience to Christ through what he's commanded us to do? Get baptized. We're going to do that in a couple of weeks here. It's the normal Christian experience in the New Testament. You believe and you get baptized as an expression of our faith and love in Jesus Christ. There's a second question. And this isn't about our heart, but this is about our feet and our hands. It's about our heart, too. Are we on mission? Are we on mission? The storyline is all about God's mission of pursuing a people who rebelled against him, of making all things right through Christ for his glory and our good. That's his mission that found us. And wildly so, it's his only plan A for his rescue plan in this world. Are you on mission? Peter was not because of his failure and guilt. The disciples in Acts chapter 1 were not. It said they, they were all consumed with Jesus. When are you coming back? Tell us the date. And there's a whole bunch of people that are Christ followers that are all concerned about Jesus' return. And they're actually fighting it about it and making conjectures about, conjectures about it. And they're not engaged in the mission. They're distracted. The disciples in Acts chapter 1 are staring in the clouds when Jesus goes up. And I mean, you and I would have been staring in the clouds. And it took two angels to say, hey, guys, knock it off now. He's gone. He's coming back. you got a job to do. Get to it. Ananias and Sapphira, chapter 5 of Acts, they were distracted. How were they distracted? Oh, they were pretending to be on mission. It was a ruse. It was a ruse. Are you on mission? Here's the cool thing. Whatever God commands, his commands are promises in disguise. What did he say to his disciples? What did he say to us? Make disciples, all the nations. Be witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And then he says, I'm not just telling you what to do. I'm going to give you the power to do it. My spirit. If we're on mission, then we operate in the fullness of the spirit. We have boldness in proclaiming the clear gospel message, which is about Jesus, his life, death, resurrection. We live out our lives in humility. We're prepared to answer the person who says, man, what do I do because I, I messed up and I need, I need God. You're prepared to help them understand what it means to turn to God and to place your full trust. And we would love them enough to warn them when they don't and plead with them until they do. Let's pray. Lord, we're so used to the story that it doesn't move us as it should. To think that we were subjects in a kingdom that were just eyes wide open treasonous and the way that you dealt with us is sending your son to die to bridge the gap in that relationship. And we bless you that you pursued us to the end of nailing your son to the cross. That was your plan for your glory to give us life. And then wildly, Lord, you want to use us. And so we bless you for your 
grace that has marked the last two millennia for the people who lived and shared the good news to us. And now we want to be that kind of church. We, we want to see the power of your spirit at work in our lives, at work in this church, at work in this city, through our partners, whether it's New Orleans or South Dakota or around the world. You're the hope of the world, and we want to be faithful in pointing people to you. So until you come or call us home, fill us with your spirit that the good news of the gospel and great confidence in it and a great love for the people you died for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.